Hi everybody and welcome to Inside View. I'm your host Chris Stevenson. Recently I was watching a, a television program from 19 or, or 2014. It was called The Newsroom with uh, uh, Jeff Daniels plays a, a news reporter uh, named Will McAvoy and he was interviewing a man from the EPA. It was about climate change and the EPA uh, scientist said that the last time that the CO2 levels were this high, 400 parts per million, the oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now, and, uh, and, and there are two things to know. I remember this now. There are two things to know. First is that half the world's population lives within 120 miles of the ocean, and the second thing, Will asked him, what's the second thing? Humans can't breathe underwater. So it, it, was a, it was a striking scene. So Will says, well, give me an analogy to help people to understand climate change. He says, okay, you're in your car, in the garage, with the engine running, and the door is closed, and you slip on into unconsciousness. That's it, because that's the analogy. But Will says, well, what if somebody comes and opens the door? He says, you're already dead. But what if somebody got there on time? Well, then you survive. So what is the CO2 equivalent of the getting there on time? He said, well, shutting off the car 20 years ago. Today, my guest is John Buckley, who is the executive director of the Central Sierra Environmental Resources Center. John was our EPA guy. Was he being too pessimistic? Is it just hyperbole or is climate change this real? So my bias is that not only is climate change highly real, but it's something that we have a, a moral and, and social responsibility to address, not just because of you know, ourselves and how it might affect us, but thinking out many generations into the future. The challenge is, whenever someone puts forward something that it's going to be a crisis, people look around and they see it's not a crisis right now, so they tend to discount it. But if people can recognize that the crisis is now occurring, at least in our part of the world, right now because of incredible wildfires that are unprecedented, in terms of a drought that just in the last 15 years we've had multiple years of drought including one of the worst supposedly based on tree rings in a thousand years a four-year drought period that was the worst in a thousand years these are examples of something that's measurable and meaningful now so whether or not people are going to uh, become unconscious from a lack of enough oxygen or whatever the reality is we're changing our climate we all have a responsibility and this is something that we can make a difference on but people tend to want to say oh what can i do it's such just one person or a small community or whatever okay so, so our epa guy in my little example which was fictional by the way but i thought it was nice writing uh he was asked so what does this climate change look like and he said well there will be massive migration, there will be a disease that spreads all over the world, there will be few food and water shortages, there will be wildfires, as you said, that are uncontrollable. He said that there would be storms strong enough to level cities and darken the skies permanently. So what do you think this climate change is going to look like for us? So again, not being the expert on predicting the future, all I can look to is what is actually happening right now and just for the moment, think about the temperatures this year in the Pacific Northwest. 
So in some areas in Washington, where 100 degrees is unusual, there were temperatures this year of 115 to 120 degrees. Those were documented, recorded, you know, high temperatures that were unprecedented. And when it comes to something that ties to what I deal with, which is forest, water, wildlife, the forest in the last decade, just in one part of the drought period a few years ago, had 150 million trees that the Forest Service from aerial flights counted, not one at a time, but obviously extrapolated, 150 million mature trees that all died from bark beetles and drought. It didn't just mean that trees died, which affects wildlife or scenic values or whatever, but those dead trees are now fuel. And just by chance this morning, I watched a science webinar that talked about mass fuel, all this dead material now down on the forest floor, which is feeding the Dixie fire, which fed the Creek fire last year, which was a phenomenal fire down in the Sequoia and Sierra National Forest. And these kinds of repercussions or um, results from climate change, increased global warming, and longer fire seasons all add up to smoke that affects people in the Central Valley, the Bay Area or others, smoke that in some cases can shorten people's lives. Okay, you said that the fires affect climate change. Can you explain how that happens? So not that the fires affect climate change, climate change makes the fire season longer, makes the fires more severe, and the dead trees that came from climate change, change or from a warming drought conditions now have exacerbated the fire conditions. So I was a firefighter for the Forest Service for 13 years. I traveled all over the United States on hotshot fire crews, fought fires in places from the East Coast to you know Idaho, Montana, all over. And what has happened since that time is that instead of fire seasons coming to a close in September, at the latest, in some cases, October or into November down in what we call South Zone, Southern California. Now, fire season can go all the way into January in some of the drier areas like Southern California and can start far earlier than we ever expected before in even spring seasons here in California. So there are real and measurable effects that are happening. But one of the challenges and something I hope I get asked for is what are some solutions just in terms of forest that we can do because there is climate change and it's causing okay. these effects. Let's go there. Okay, so the, the common consensus, and it seems to be that many scientists agree with this, that there's too much fuel in the forest and that the forest needs to be thinned to make them sort of in a patchy state the way they once were back when we had natural forest fires that would roll through the landscape, okay? So is that what we need to do? Do we need to thin the forest? And, and, and what do we do with all of that vegetation that we take from thinning the forest? So you are well-versed and you have just shared very accurately what science um, have as a consensus approach. It's not quite just thin the forest though. There are three techniques or three treatments that the environmental community, which I openly represent, I've been an environmental leader for 32 years now in, in this part of the Sierra Nevada region, but our environmental community, the timber industry, 
local stakeholder, four stakeholder groups in this region all collectively agree we need to do more prescribed burning during cool, moist times of year. That treats the surface fuels and what we refer to as the ladder fuels. So if you treat the things that carry the fire down on the ground or the, the ladder fuels that can carry them up in the trees, you greatly reduce, reduce how fast a fire can spread. Okay, but is it practical really to like mechanically thin forests and prescribed burn forests? Because there are a lot of forests out there, not only in the, in the Western United States, but but in the world, when we're talking about mitigation of climate change. Uh, you know, how, well, just how, do, for how a do we get there? Right, just for a moment, just looking at forests in the Sierra Nevada region, it is very feasible to strategically treat with the prescribed burning, with biomass removal of all the small, not all, but many of the small trees, dead fallen trees and others that can be chipped to go to cogeneration plants to help produce electricity and burn more cleanly than being burned in the open out in the forest. Okay, well, they'll only burn under a wildfire or under controlled conditions. Okay. So my question was like, is it, is it really practical? Is it feasible to really thin the massive amount of forest that we have? Or should we be very selective in where we're thinning the forest? So there's only, according to the science that the Forest Service has as their prime research scientist, there's about 40% of the Sierra Nevada's forests that are accessible for, suitable for, commercially, economically viable for thinning logging. Those 40% of the forest areas can have thinning logging. Other areas can only have prescribed burning and not all of it, just strategically to break up the continuity of fuels so that when a fire gets to some places, it's been burned already in recent years. Other places, it's been thinned and prescribed burned. And in other places, the other is biomass removal of those small to mid-sized trees that don't quite make it for saw logs, but also create a lot of fuel. It is economically viable. And the other thing to think about is, if the Dixie fire ends up costing taxpayers $500 million to put out, the amount of cost to do preventative thinning, prescribed burning and biomass removal to prevent that expense might have been a quarter of that. Pay now or pay later. And by proactive treatments that everyone can agree to, not just the environmental community and the timber industry, but a wide range of scientists and others all saying, do the three treatments, do them where it's economically viable and where it's most strategic. But the challenge is Congress has not funded the Forest Service to do anywhere near the level of work that needs to be done. Is that part of the infrastructure bill that has just been passed by the Senate? Uh, so the BIF, <laughs> the bipartisan infrastructure uh, package, however they have it, does include a significant amount of funding for what they refer to as forest management and fire resiliency treatments. It could be that that does provide a pulse of new funding, but the challenge is we are now maybe, you know, 100 years or 70 years behind where we could have been if we kept managing actively. And so it will take many years of funding and treatments to start to catch up. But yes, that particular package does have bipartisan support for forest management treatments, including senators from California as leading the effort with Senator Feinstein has a bill that was part of that whole package that 
was supported by Republicans who also have totally agreed that's a priority need. Okay. You mentioned timber companies earlier, and it occurred to me that, like in the past, we thought of timber companies as being very solely devoted to their shareholders, and uh, and their number one priority was make money for the company. Which in, in the business world, there's nothing wrong with that, but it may not be the most environmentally sensitive thing to do. So my question is, have the timber companies now come around to the way of the science thinking and in, 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 in environmental research, so that they're like they're they're cooperating now with people that are like environmentally sensitive i'm in a forest stakeholder group i'm a co-chair called yosemite stanislaus solutions i'm in another one here in calaveras county that is accg amador calaveras consensus group in the yss one i'm a co-chair with the chair being from spi the timber industry so we work collaboratively together with all kinds of interests. We're joined at the hip in agreement. I am not in favor of how they manage their private timberlands where they continue to clear cut, where they continue to manage primarily for profits and for wood production rather than ecologically or for watershed benefits or other things. But on the public forest lands, SPI and other lumber companies are very positive in coming out and doing the thinning logging treatments that are ecologically science-based and supporting. They're willing to make the extra effort, even when they make less profits, to do things to protect wildlife on those public lands. And um, I have a lot of respect for working with them uh, toward middle ground. I would love to change what they do on private lands. They don't ask what I would like them to do. <laughs> That's right. Do they reforest when they clear cut? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, they meet all legal state requirements. Again, even if those are not from my bias, from the environmental perspective, um, up to the level that would be ideal if we were looking at this with a broad range of priorities rather than wood production. But those are private timberlands. They manage them legally. Um, I have no criticism of them doing something that's not within the law. Well, that's high praise from someone in your position, the executive director of the Central Sierra Environmental Resource Center. So yes. I'm impressed. Okay, our, our representative for the state of California, Tom McClintock, sat in that very chair that you're sitting in right now. And, and he had this to say not too long ago. He said, the, he's, he's talking about, he, he's very critical of the leftist environmental groups, yep. okay? He says, the environmental reviews that are now required to do a forest thinning project vastly exceed the value of the surplus timber. About four years to do the study to reduce the timber load. That's why we have four times the timber that the land can support throughout the Sierra, and that's why it's burning. Do you agree? No. And with all due respect to the congressman, for years his theme has been, let's find a villain. His villain has been leftist, extreme Bay Area, uh, environmental groups and others. The reality is, is there's a solution that all of us, including Republicans who are very conservative, could all embrace, which is the one that the timber industry, county supervisors, a wide range of folks are saying, let's work together to do treatments that do make sense and that have support from environmentalists like our center. The reality is, is the Forest Service hasn't been funded to do work where people are in agreement. 
And yes, there are environmental uh, reports, they call them environmental impact statements or environmental assessments, EAs, that have to be done. They don't take four years. In most cases, they take from a year and a half for the, the more abbreviated EAs to two to two and a half years for the others. But those also provide assurance of where you're not harming the most at-risk species, how you're minimizing damage to watersheds, and where the most economic value is to get out the wood products. So instead of finding a target or a villain and trying to run for your campaign by finding somebody to blame, I respectfully urge the congressman and others to all get together where there's now agreement on the solution and for Congress to step up and fund it. Because all due respect to the congressman, he has not ever been at the forefront of asking for more money for the Forest Service to do the work where there is agreement to get work done. So if you're not part of the solution to be um, snipping at those that you see as not helpful, um, isn't as legitimate as if, yes, I'm at the forefront trying to get more money for treatments that all sides agree are essential to do. Okay. Environmentally, we've had a number of forest fires, you know, in California and, and some close to us, like the Rim Fire and the Butte Fire. Yep. What do we do with this land that has been burned? And, and is it regenerating well? And, and there's a common thought, and, and it may be inaccurate, that it takes 100 years for a burnt forest to regenerate into a, you know, a healthy forest again. What do you think? So naturally, if people were never involved, it would take, in some cases, more than 100 years for some of these areas that burn so severely to reforest. But historically, and there's not time enough today, so again, if people want to learn about more details, they can email me. And again, I think that that can be something that can be provided. But um, our center has been at the forefront of supporting reforestation. We've helped the YSS group in Tuolumne County that has a mastered stewardship agreement to help get treatments done on the Stanislaus National Forest. It's this strange um, contractual agreement. We get money from the state to help replant trees in areas where the Forest Service doesn't have the capacity to get out there and plant trees on the Forest Service's lands where they were denuded. So instead of waiting 100 years, in many cases, within five to 10 years, there are artificially planted pines, firs, cedars, and other conifers that otherwise won't come back. But the hardwoods, the oaks, the alders, the maples, and others, they naturally resprout. There will be an oak forest, especially in the Butte fire areas, there will be an oak regeneration of all of those trees that were hardwoods that will be back far less than 100 years. But out on the national forest, these exceptionally high severity fires like the Rim Fire, left tens of thousands of acres denuded from conifer forests. And yes, we need reforestation. Our center actually over the years has had maybe as many as a hundred hours of volunteer time just having people plant trees with our staff out on national forest lands during the right time of year because it can make a difference. Wow, how many volunteers do you have and could you use more volunteers? Because that sounds intriguing. I might be one, I might be your guy. Volunteer projects, we did 15 and a couple years, 20 different projects a year up until COVID. Yeah. <laughs> COVID ended public gatherings, social gatherings, and we still are awaiting Forest Service approval to allow us to have 
volunteers and staff out there on public lands again. We are anticipating a project in September to do restoration in a clavy watershed area. Won't be tree planting, it's the wrong time of year, but it'll be help restoring eroded areas. But we still don't even know if the Forest Service is willing to allow, especially because the Delta variant, people to now get together, be in one place, and even if it's outside with masks, and many of them, hopefully most of us are, are all vaccinated like we are, our staff is, but um, we haven't gotten that permission yet. But thank you for okay. thinking about volunteering. So if somebody wants to contact you, how would they do that? Yeah. So our website is cserc.org, ccerc.org. The email is johnb at ccerc.org. And what? we'd love to have any contacts, questions, or whatever. So someone might be easier just to Google your organization, which is the Central Sierra Environmental Resource Center, yep. and, and you're John Buckley, okay? All right, so we hit on droughts a, a little bit ago. Water is, of course, a big issue in California. What is, the, uh, what is your resource center's position on reservoirs and droughts and, and agriculture and, yep. and our water problem? Yeah, so it's it's a tremendous problem. I wish we had a whole half hour on this because this topic is fascinating, even for people who already think they're well informed. The water rights in California is an archaic system where someone may have filed in the 1800s um, to quote claim 50,000 acre feet or whatever it may be of water on a river system. There pre-1914 water rights or senior water rights. After that time, there are junior water. There's all these complexities, but it's over-allocated. The water that comes in a year like this one, there's less water than what everybody on paper is entitled to. So agricultural utility districts, other water purveyors with lots of lawyers, lots of lobbyists, lots of others, tend to get the maximum amount of water as much as they can squeeze out of the system whereas small you know water districts or those that are more limited individuals that may have water rights they're they're the first one shut off right now there's a tremendous debate with the state water board as at what point to shut off many of the water districts getting the water that they normally would get because it's so dry there's it was so little snowpack and I just came across New Maloney's Reservoir to see that it's incredibly low already. And we need to think about next year, we need to have a carryover of water for next year for agriculture, Central Valley communities and others. It's a challenging issue. Tom McClintock said when he was in that very chair that uh, our reservoirs are being needlessly drained. Is that true? So again, if you don't believe that water making it all the way to the ocean so that salmon, steelhead, and other species can survive as they have for hundreds of thousands of years. If you don't believe that's important, as the congressman has made very clear it's not his priority, then water reaching the ocean is wasted water. Most Californians, Republicans and Democrats, believe that water quality, not having polluted rivers, and having sustainable salmon, steelhead and other fish and other aquatic species in the rivers is part of California's heritage that we need to pass on to future generations. So wiping out salmon now, because we want to maximize water in a reservoir for agriculture, 
is a trade-off that some will say is that's the way to go. Our center believes again there's middle ground on this and one of the proposals that was put forward for the Tuolumne and the Stanislaus rivers was to have 30 to 40 percent of the water left in the river for all the recreation and all the values that are have water in the river and 60 to 70 percent allowed to be taken for agriculture all the commercial uses and ever that was soundly rejected by the water districts modesto irrigation district turlock irrigation district others oakdale irrigation district who are fighting to keep at least 80 percent of the water out of the rivers and in years like this the 20 percent may get so hot and and the temperatures may be lethal for the small salmon steelhead and other species because again the temperatures have been getting so extremely hot do you think we need more reservoirs and and and, and to make more reservoirs are we talking about building more dams yeah. or it has been said that every major river has already been dammed yeah, is it which, possible that's the answer is so economically and feasibly, all potential logical sites for reservoirs have already been created over the last 150 years. There are two or three highly debatable sites in California that certain water, you know, damn the river folks, see they still may have some economic value, but they would be boondoggles for taxpayers for all the rates. And anyone who really wants to look at the history of water allocations in the Central Valley rivers in particular, including all the rivers that come out of our Sierra system, um, it is appalling how special agricultural interests have ended up with so much of the water, even at the expense of the Bay Area, other places along the coast, the place where most of the people live, it's really a small, small percentage of water users who dominate the water in California. It's its quite a, an amazing story. And the Central Valley has is, is been said to be the breadbasket of the United States and, and the world. And you know, there's so much agriculture there. Is it that we have developed too much agriculture for the water supply? Or is it partly that there's a drought and there's just not as much water as there once was? I think it's a combination of factors. And a quick example is during the four-year drought that was happening, when the state was cutting off water for many agricultural users, new almond orchards and walnut orchards were being planted by the thousands of acres across the Central Valley at the same time that the state was telling agriculture they were going to cut off water supplies because they just said, oh, we'll drill wells deeper and deeper now, and then we'll take water from the river when the water comes back. Well, you can only drill wells so deep for so long Pretty soon you've turned the Central Valley's aquifer underneath it into such a low level that at some point there will be a catastrophe. Um, and people who are making profits now are only thinking of the moment and not thinking of future yeah. generations. We've, we've already seen it, it's, and it's an incredible thing to see that that, that land has dropped. Oh, yeah, subsidence. Like, yeah, like eight feet or something, is oh, that no, right? Or more? 80 feet. 80 feet. And down in, in the southern part uh. of the uh, San Joaquin Valley, there are subsidence areas of 78 feet or more that have been documented because of drying out the water. So water is a fascinating topic. Yeah. I'm sure people watching this all have their different priority focus because people care about water and so it's important to them. What can we do as just your average everyday citizen to help with the, 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 
the drought and the water mitigation problem and climate change as well. Yeah. What do you think? Each person has a best knowledge of what's feasible for them to make wise choices that can minimize their impacts. So it's not just recycling, which most people do with the obvious things, but may not do with a lot of the other stuff, but it's also how short do you make your showers? How much do you minimize your use? All of this, there's things people can do to make a difference. Okay, I appreciate that. One more time, how does somebody contact you? Your phone number maybe? Yeah, so 209-586-7440, John Buckley with the Central Sierra Environmental Resource Center or CSERC. Great, uh, it was Mark Twain that said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. I think we can do a little bit about it now with the climate change, and I appreciate you coming in today. So I thank you very much, and I want to thank you for watching Inside View.